Welcome to the June 15th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, no survival benefit for vincristine steroid pulses in contemporary studies of childhood acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, and reducing interval of pulses reduced toxicity, according to this systematic review and meta-analysis. These findings may have important implications for future studies in childhood ALL. Up next, the rheumatology drug Abatacept may be a promising strategy for the treatment of acute graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD. The treatment was well-tolerated and led to a durable reduction in prednisone dose among responders. And last on the podcast, the hemorrhage risk of desatinib therapy. Researchers show that GP2B-dependent signaling is essential to platelet migration, and blocking that signaling cascade abrogated platelet migration in patients with leukemia treated with desatinib. Let's turn to our first research article, entitled, Impact of Vincristine Steroid Pulses in Maintenance for B-Cell Pediatric ALL, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. The first author is Louise Guala of McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. ALL is the most common cancer of childhood. The prognosis for pediatric ALL is very favorable today, with cure rates over 90% thanks to advances in supportive care, risk stratification, and treatment regimens. Maintenance therapy, which typically consists of anti-metabolite agents such as 6-mercaptopurine and or methotrexate, is a critical component of ALL treatment. Patients who aren't adherent to maintenance therapy are at increased relapse risk. Whether other agents beyond anti-metabolites are needed in maintenance is a subject of considerable debate. Several decades ago, study groups began adding pulses of incristine and corticosteroids to maintenance therapy. That was on the basis of clinical trials showing that these pulses significantly improved the probability of event-free survival, or EFS. However, the benefit of vincristine steroid pulses in the context of current treatment approaches is not clear. The importance of pulses has waned in the modern era of intensive induction, consolidation, and delayed intensification schemes. Over time, pulses have become shorter, and the interval between pulses has been increased. So are these pulses still relevant? They certainly were in 1996, when a systematic review and meta-analysis by Richards et al. demonstrated a 29% reduction in the odds of an event for pulses versus no pulses. Fast forward to 2010, and a review by Yetgen et al. again showed a reduced event rate for pulses versus no pulses, with an odds ratio of 0.82. Yet one of the studies included in that review, from the International BFM Study Group, showed no benefit from adding pulses to maintenance therapy. After that, treatment strategies started to diverge in terms of how many pulses and how frequently to give them, if ever. And the findings of the BFM group were recently corroborated by two large trials published in 2021. One showed favorable outcomes for less frequent pulses. The other demonstrated that pulses could be omitted entirely after one year in patients with low-risk ALL. That leads us to the current study by Guala and colleagues. They aimed to determine the value of incristine corticosteroid pulses in the modern era. They were particularly interested in looking at studies that evaluated higher versus lower frequencies of pulses. The authors conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of 25 studies comprising approximately 12,500 low and intermediate standard risk patients. 
They split the patients into historical and contemporary subgroups. Treatment was considered contemporary if it included a delayed intensification or reintensification phase based on Protocol 3 from early BFM trials, and if it avoided prophylactic cranial radiation, except for the highest risk patients. In the meta-analysis of efficacy data, more frequent pulses were associated with an EFS benefit, but only in the historical subgroup. The EFS was significantly improved for more frequent as compared to less frequent pulses, with a hazard ratio of 0.79 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.68 to 0.91. By contrast, in the contemporary subgroup, there was no significant difference in event-free survival between more or less frequent pulses, with a hazard ratio of 0.96 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.85 to 1.09. Pulse frequency had no impact on overall survival or relapse risk. However, toxicity did vary by pulse frequency. Odds of grade 3 or greater non-hepatic toxicity were increased for high pulse frequency as compared to low pulse frequency, with an odds ratio of 1.31 and a 95% confidence interval of 1.12 to 1.52. Taken together, these results suggest that in the modern era, frequent pulses of incristine and steroids are associated with increased toxicity, with no efficacy benefit over less frequent pulses. In a commentary, Franco Locatelli of Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Rome asks, Is the age of incristine steroid pulses over? Locatelli notes that in the present study, the historical benefit of frequent pulses is no longer apparent with contemporary treatment. Furthermore, reducing or removing pulses decreased rates of toxicity. Altogether, that is, quote, definitive confirmation, unquote, that children with low and intermediate standard risk B-cell ALL, treated with modern intensified pre-maintenance therapy, do not obtain additional survival benefit from pulses during maintenance. It's possible that any benefit conferred by vincristine steroid pulses will be ever more marginal as powerful immunotherapeutic approaches such as CAR T-cells, bispecific antibodies, and antibody drug conjugates are incorporated into frontline therapy. According to Locatelli, the key message of the present review is that in high-resourced countries, the use of pulses during maintenance therapy could be decreased or even potentially abandoned in newly diagnosed patients with favorable risk characteristics. These findings, he adds, may also help inform the design of upcoming clinical studies in pediatric ALL, addressing the question of whether continued use of pulses in maintenance therapy is still warranted, particularly among patients who experience significant toxicity on therapy. The next research article is entitled, Phase II Clinical Trial Evaluating Abatacept in Patients with Steroid Refractory Chronic Graft versus Host Disease. And the first author is Anita G. Kashi of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Chronic graft versus host disease, or GVHD, is responsible for a substantial amount of the morbidity, mortality, and reduced quality of life seen following allogeneic transplantation. The cumulative incidence is about 50%, underlining the need for effective, long-lasting therapies. The first line of treatment is usually corticosteroids. However, responses are often incomplete and toxicity is significant. Without additional systemic therapy, less than 20% of steroid-treated patients will achieve partial or complete response and survive one year after initial treatment. 
There are several FDA-approved treatments with meaningful impacts and improved outcomes in patients with steroid refractory chronic GVHD. These include ibrutinib, belumosidil, and ruxolitinib, which are associated with overall response rates ranging from 67% to 76%. However, most patients achieve only a partial response on these agents, and many don't respond at all. So novel treatment approaches are still needed. Another promising agent to emerge recently is abatacept, which was initially approved back in 2005 for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, but it's also used to treat other rheumatological conditions. And in 2021, abatacept received an indication for prophylaxis of acute GVHD in certain patients undergoing allogeneic transplantation. Abatacept was the first in a class of agents known as selective co-stimulation modulators. It's a recombinant fusion protein that binds to CD80 and CD86 on antigen-presenting cells, which attenuates the CD28-mediated activation of T-cells. In the present study, Cauchy and co-authors hypothesized that immunomodulation through co-stimulatory blockade could block T-cell activation, mitigating the effects of chronic GVHD. It's a follow-up to a phase one clinical trial evaluating the safety and efficacy of this agent in patients with chronic GVHD that was refractory to steroid treatment. Results of that study, published in 2018 in the Blood Journal, demonstrated that abatacept was safe, improved clinical response, and significantly reduced the use of prednisone. The present phase two trial looked not only at the efficacy and safety of abatacept in steroid refractory chronic GVHD, but also at its impact on the immune microenvironment. The primary endpoint of the study was overall response rate, including partial and complete responses, at one month following six doses of abatacept. 39 subjects were enrolled. The average age was 62 years, and 54% were female. The most common underlying primary diseases were AML in 46% of the patients and MDS in 20%. At baseline, 18 patients had moderate chronic GVHD and 21 had severe chronic GVHD. Out of 36 evaluable patients, 21, or 58%, achieved a response. All were partial responses. The sites of greatest improvement were lung in 57%, liver in 54%, GI tract in 50%, and mouth in 42%. Abatacept treatment also led to a durable reduction in prednisone dose among responders, starting as early as the third dose. With median follow-up of 43.1 months, the three-year overall survival was 72% and three-year failure-free survival was 66%. Treatment was well-tolerated. The most common adverse events were neutropenia, including seven events of which one was grade 3 and one was grade 4, fatigue, headache, and upper respiratory infection. Immune correlative studies, performed before and after treatment, demonstrated the effect of abatacept on the immune microenvironment. There was a decrease in expression of PD-1 on circulating CD4-positive T-cells after abatacept therapy. There was no significant differences in presence of activated T-cells, expression of interferon gamma and IL-10, or BAF expression by CD19-positive B-cells following treatment. There was a significant difference in pre- and post-treatment plasma concentrations of IL-1-alpha, IL-2, and TNF-alpha. That led to interest as to whether these cytokines could be used as biomarkers of response to treatment. However, there were no significant differences in pre- or post-treatment levels of these cytokines in responders as compared to non-responders. In a commentary, Daniel Wolf of University Hospital Regensburg in Germany 
states that the observed efficacy and favorable toxicity profile confirm the findings of the preceding Phase I study. However, he describes abatacept as another trial-and-error candidate in chronic GVHD. Wolf says trial and error is a common theme in the treatment of chronic GVHD, even for an agent like belumosidil, which demonstrated a 74% overall response rate in the randomized Phase II Rockstar study that implies a failure to respond in about one quarter of patients. There is an urgent need, according to Wolf, for a biomarker to predict response to different classes of agents used to treat chronic GVHD. Such markers could enable biology-driven treatment geared toward preventing the progression of the disease toward non-reversible changes. However, the correlative immune analysis in this trial did not identify a biomarker to predict response, which Wolf says is another common theme of clinical trials in chronic GVHD. Until predictive biomarkers are available, Wolf concludes, Abatacept will remain another candidate in the trial and error system, but certainly deserves evaluation in subsequent clinical trials. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. The final article is titled Mechanosensing via a GP2B SARC 1433Zeta Axis Critically Regulates Platelet Migration in Vascular Inflammation. The first author is Rainier Kaiser of Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, Germany. Platelets are dynamic blood cells involved not only in thrombosis and hemostasis, but also in immune response. They are central effectors of clot formation after a traumatic vessel injury, and they are vital first responders following inflammation and infection, serving to mediate clearance of pathogens, recruit innate immune cells, and shape adaptive immune response. Previous studies have shown that immune-responsive platelets migrate to find sites of microvascular injury which helps prevent inflammatory bleeding and dissemination of bacteria. Further research has uncovered key regulators of this migration, including myosin heavy chain, or MYH9, and actin-related protein complex 2-3, or ARP23, such that platelets deficient in MYH9, or ARP23, lack the ability to migrate. However, little is known about the signaling pathways that regulate platelet migration upstream and downstream from these two key players. In the present research article, Kaiser and co-authors describe the use of high-throughput in vitro assays of platelet recruitment, retraction, and migration. They used these assays to tease out the sequence of events that prompt migration in mouse and human platelets. They found that the sarcoma family kinase C-SARC and the SARC family kinase binding protein 1433-zeta, situated downstream from the fibrinogen receptor GP2B3A, coupled to G-alpha-13, was required for platelet polarization and migration. Subsequently, they discovered that they could interfere with the migratory ability of platelets by using inhibitors of this signaling cascade, including desatinib, the BCR-ABLE CSARC inhibitor that is used clinically to treat patients with chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML, and Philadelphia chromosome-positive ALL. In mouse models of inflammation, low doses of disatinib blocked platelet migration and aggravated inflammatory bleeding without affecting other platelet functions, including traumatic hemostasis and arterial thrombus formation. These experimental findings are interesting in light of previous clinical studies that show disatinib is associated with a substantial risk of bleeding. 
In desatinib phase 1 and 2 studies, nearly one quarter of patients had drug-associated hemorrhage, mostly within the first three months of treatment. In more than 80% of cases, the bleeding was gastrointestinal or mucosal. Certainly, some of that bleeding risk could be explained by thrombocytopenia or coagulation defects. However, about 40% of desatinib-treated patients with drug-induced hemorrhage were not thrombocytopenic. Kaiser and co-investigators also studied platelets obtained from desatinib-treated leukemia patients prone to clinically relevant hemorrhage. These platelets demonstrated marked defects in migration, with only partial impact on other core platelet functions. Likewise, platelets from patients treated with bosutinib, which also targets CSARC, exhibited a striking reduction in capacity to migrate. Platelet migration was markedly reduced in comparison to healthy control subjects and in comparison to patients treated with imatinib, which does not affect CSARC-mediated signaling. Taken together, these findings illustrate a specific signaling pathway needed for platelet migration, while offering novel insights that might help explain desatinib-related platelet dysfunction and bleeding. In a commentary on this study, Giulia Pantorlolo of University Medical Center Mainz, Germany, and Christoph Reinhardt of the German Center for Cardiovascular Research highlight the hemorrhage risk of desatinib therapy. They say that altogether, this translational study by Kaiser and co-authors shows how the GP2B G-alpha-13 CSARC 1433-zeta signaling axis is essential for platelet migration. But besides providing better characterization of this signaling pathway, the study shines light on an important side effect of the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor desatinib. In the context of CML and ALL therapy, they say, inhibiting this pathway adds the risk of inflammatory hemorrhage related to impairment of platelet migration. Overall, the study by Kaiser and colleagues provides a comprehensive assessment of underlying signaling events that come before and after platelet migration. They provide evidence that migratory capacity of platelets is sensitive to pharmacological interference, and more so than other functions for which platelets are responsible. In this way, the researchers have highlighted impaired migratory capacity of platelets as a plausible explanation for the substantial increase in mucosal bleeding observed in patients who are treated with desatinib. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.